Welcome back to the Tales of Two Cities podcast. I'm Ashley Omoma. And I'm Emil Sparling, and we'll be your hosts this week. This episode is all about repurposing, how people use something in a new or different way. We'll hear about a former cannery in East Oakland that's being used as a workspace for people in creative businesses. This is only one building like this, and it's Art House Studios, and it's in Oakland. There's no questioning where you are. And we'll hear about what one artist is making from steel that was once a part of the Old Bay Bridge. When I first got the steel, it was a nice rainy day, and um, it was like Christmas. It was like opening my best Christmas present I could ever imagine. We'll hear about how the Oakland School District is switching out its supper program to instead serve an evening snack, and why some students are pushing back to say that it's not enough. If we don't eat the supper, then we can't really perform how our coaches want us to perform. We'll talk to someone who repurposed his own name after immigrating to the U.S. The worst part about it might be when they try to pronounce it and they try to like get me to like say it in front of the class. And we'll meet a Lyft driver who makes each trip more than a ride. He uses them to create customized wraps about his passengers and where they're going. What I'm on a lake right now is kind of hazy. Damn, it's kind of crazy. There's some common climate change. Other people call it lasers. Finally, we'll hear from the Hood Incubators Policy Fellow, Kane Cherry, about redefining what it means to be a person of color within the Bay Area's cannabis industry. We need to find out ways of making what was used as a weapon against black and brown communities a vehicle for empowering those communities. And that's all coming up on the Tales of Two Cities podcast. Anywhere you turn in downtown Oakland these days, you see cranes and new construction. But that's not the only development happening here. Behind the facades of historic buildings throughout the city, just as much is going on. Our first story today is from reporter Sarah Trent who takes us inside a former cannery in East Oakland to learn about how it's being repurposed. So first I want to thank everyone for coming. We're going to do a tour of the building first, followed by as many cocktails as we can all get down. Is that okay? Sounds good. Cool. Okay, let's go. I'm at Art House Studios in the Jingletown neighborhood of East Oakland with 25 other Bay Area professionals. Developer Riaz Taplin is leading us on the tour of the building, which opened earlier this year. Or rather reopened. It's one example of adaptive reuse, using old structures for a new purpose. Taplin is turning an old cannery into offices for creative entrepreneurs. We wanted to give you a little bit of the history of the building. It was built in 1916 as the H.G. Prince Cannery. It was later taken over by Del Monte and then again by the Lucchese Manufacturing Company, which made TV mounts. When Taplin bought the building, it was mostly abandoned. If you've been on BART near Fruitvale, you've probably seen it. Its five-story tower, which is covered in graffiti, stands out in this warehouse and residential district. From the street, it stands out too. Artists have covered the entire facade with huge geometric blocks in every color. Inside, visitors are impressed too. Really cool. Cool, right? Yeah. Neil Davis of the Strategic Education Research Partnership stepped aside to share about his group, which is renting a unit on the first floor while their office in the tower is being finished. Well, we're really excited about the space we're moving into. It has a huge wall of windows, and then we'll have access to the rooftop garden, which will be terrific, too. It's pretty. There's all kinds of interesting graffiti, and in our space there is a wall that has this beautiful piece that we're going to keep. He's standing in a wide hallway with high ceilings. This hall and the whole building are covered in art. 
there are bright murals and collages that stretch floor to ceiling. In one corridor, narrow strips of what Taplin says was hotel art purchased in Bali are assembled in one strip that stretches the entire length of the hallway. It's about design, Taplin says, but it's also about identity. So I think what's really appealing about buildings like this is it creates a sense of place. Like, you're not at that building in Bombay or that building in London. No, this is only one building like this, and it's Art House Studios, and it's in Oakland. There's no questioning where you are when you're here. Art House Studios is unique, but it's also just one example of adaptive reuse. Rochelle Lent is a Bay Area designer who has focused some of her work on adaptive reuse projects in Texas and California. She spoke to us by phone. I think a lot of people hear adaptive reuse and they think of all these cool buildings like, you know, the Tate Modern in London, which used to be a power station, or the um, Orsay in Paris, which used to be a train station. Or in Austin, her own firm converted a gas station into a Thai restaurant. In Oakland, many downtown car dealerships began their lives as horse stables. The old Sears department store and Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center are being turned into office spaces. It's kind of like that thing like your grandpa or your dad says, like, they don't make them like this anymore. Lent says adaptive reuse is great for creating affordable spaces, but it's also good for ecological reasons. Her own job is mostly to design new construction, which creates a lot of waste. The projected uh, lifespan of a building like about 30 years, which isn't great. I'm going to build something and then, you know, hopefully somewhere down the line, someone will reuse it and repurpose it and give it a new life instead of just trashing it. I'm going to try not to be duplicative with what we went over on the walk. Guests sit for a PowerPoint in a big room with a kitchen and concrete walls. Originally, Taplin had planned for this space to be part of a large shared workspace built alongside LiveWork Studios. Most of his work is creating affordable housing for what he calls the missing middle, people who can't afford luxury homes but also don't qualify for subsidized affordable housing. But when the 2016 ghost ship fire happened in an unsanctioned live-work warehouse right down the street, he scrapped that plan. The offices and studios he's built instead serve a similar need for affordable space. Look, as a general rule, entrepreneurs just need roadblocks taken out of their way. So our goal is to be the most affordable single office, dual office solution. Scroll down. Taplin says that the main floors of the project will be about 80% occupied by the end of the year, and the tower should be finished soon, adding even more space for small businesses. Scroll down. Scroll down. Scroll down. Scroll down. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> for the Tale of Two Cities podcast, I'm Sarah Trent. Our next story is from Allison Stamos and Meg Schutzer. They report on the surprising journey of what remains of the Old Bay Bridge and how one artist is making a sculpture from steel that once connected Oakland and San Francisco. When the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge was built in the 1930s, the idea was that it should be firm and immovable. Then came the 1989 earthquake that collapsed a section of the bridge's upper deck. Engineers were able to repatch the broken section of the bridge, but they realized that the eastern span had to be replaced with a different design. 
Once the bridge we drive over today was complete in 2013, Caltrans, the California Department of Transportation, began the demolition of the old bridge. Over five years, Caltrans has used explosives to take the old bridge down, section by section, in the reverse order of how it was built in the 30s. Karen Betts is with the Bay Area's Metropolitan Transportation Commission, one of the agencies working on the East Span replacement project. She remembers visiting the remains of the East Span in a warehouse in Oakland. I went down there and to walk in and amongst stacks of old bridge steel, the size of these pieces, the length of the girders, the typical truss structure of the old East Span all around you, almost like a, a maze of, of old steel. All in, more than 58,000 tons of steel will be removed when the demolition is complete. Some of it has already ended up in surprising places. It's going to be a good day, studio day. 45 miles north of the Bay Bridge is an outdoor art studio hidden behind a gate at the end of a dead-end road. The yard is home to dozens of steel sculptures towering over the one-story shed. My name is Sean Paul Lorenz, studio assistant manager for Mark's DeSuvero studio here in Petaluma, and um, I'm also a sculptor myself. Lorenz is tall and skinny, blonde hair and blue eyes. Hopefully dirty, because that means I've been working, and um, yeah, and if I'm dirty, I'm happy, so usually smiling too. Lorenz was one of 15 artists, designers, and design firms who applied for and won parts of the bridge for public projects. When I first got the steel, it was a nice rainy day, and um, I just, uh, it was like Christmas. It was like opening my best Christmas present I could ever imagine. On a truck came 140,000 pounds of steel, 10 pieces in all. Sections of the iconic lattice truss were exposed to open air and have started to rust. It took a little while to get going, just because it was so intimidating, because material's precious and you don't want to make a mistake. On this particular day, Lorenz is removing rivets from the steel, one by one. He's hammered out more than 100 so far on an 85-foot long, 15-foot high, abstract sculpture in progress. What it means, he leaves open to interpretation. I don't want people to, like need to know what I think the piece is about or what's about to me because then it will change what it's about to them so Lorenz has worked under artists much of his life this is his first large-scale project on his own there's a permanence about large sculpture because it's once it's installed not only is it a great deal of effort to get it done but they tend to stick around they don't get moved around and shuffled and end up in the backyard where this sculpture will live isn't yet clear but Lorenz has a preference I was very interested in trying to get a piece of the, the Bay Bridge sculpture on the Petaluma River to bring people from the Bay up here to know that we're part of the Bay. Preserving this history is why the artist program came to be, says Karen Betts, the public information officer who is walking around all that steel from the old Bay Bridge. It still is a landmark in our memory. It was a Depression-era workhorse of a, of a structure of a bridge. It's, it's one that I've always thought of as the People's Bridge. I love the idea that certain iconic pieces of steel that bring back the memory of that structure will be out there in, in the public sphere for us who remember the bridge to see, but also to keep the memory of the bridge around the bay. 
An installation made from Baybridge steel is already up at an artist community in Joshua Tree called the Harrison House. Other projects are in progress in the Bay Area and beyond, using up scrap steel and making it possible for the People's Bridge to live on in people's memories. I'm Meg Schutzer with Allison Stamos reporting. America is often called a melting pot, but immigrating here isn't like dissolving into a nice red, white, and blue soup. It's more like being a square block shoved into a circular hole. Names that aren't common in the United States can become a speed bump when adapting to American life. Reporter James Tenswan set out to find someone who has repurposed their own name. UC Berkeley accepts students from all over the world. This year, more than 6,500 Berkeley students are originally from other countries. And some of them are making a big change once they get here. Just ask Berkeley Junior Tsun Wong. Hello, my name is Tsun. So, how you spell it? T-S-Z, T-S-U-N. And it's a little bit hard to pronounce. So, you know. Wong came to the States from China when he was 12 and found that he was sometimes singled out because of his name. Well, there's definitely been times where my birth name came up and my, and my teacher don't know how to say it and they'll just ask me about it. I think the worst part about it might be when they try to pronounce it and they try to like get me to like say it in front of the class and that could be like sometimes embarrassing. Like I love attention, but not that kind of attention, so. So he turned to the internet for help. Well, one day I just decided I wanted a new name, no, I needed it. So I entered google.com clicked enter, and then I searched not typical name, and like I guess Nelson is one of the first to show up, and so I just chose it because I didn't want to be basic and use a name like James or Tom, no offense if you're a James or Tom. When you get a new name, it requires a lot of work. A new driver's license or ID means a long wait at the DMV. New passports and updated bank accounts come with a pile of paperwork. I still haven't got my name legally changed yet because I hate paperwork and I just hate like bureaucracy and like having to deal with like bullshit. So I will eventually get it done, but it's not on my list of things to do yet. Something more doable and immediate is a new email address. But Nelson Wong turns out to be a pretty common name. So Wong had to get creative. He added a middle initial, B. Well. The B stands for nothing really, so I typed it on Google when I first made my email account, nelsonwong at hotmail.com. I know I'm old, but like that was taken, so I was like, okay, so what else can I do to it? Nelson A. Wong, that sounds like really stupid. And so I was like, what is the next letter? B. So I did that, and now my email is nelsonbwong at hotmail.com. Please don't send me hate mail. I will not take it. A new name and email address were the start of a fresh chapter in his life, but his old life isn't entirely in the rearview mirror. I don't think I can ever actually forget my old name. I think that is impossible because it's been like something I've been carrying around with me for a while. But so leaving it behind is not an option, but you know, I wouldn't let it, you know, stop me from doing new things and trying new things out, so... Reporting from Sprawl Plaza at UC Berkeley, I'm James Tenswan. Three out of four Oakland students are from households that are at or below the poverty line. That means they qualify for free lunch, and many also relied on a free after-school supper program for their daily nutrition, until the Oakland School Board cut it to reduce the deficit. Reporter Wyatt Kroof looks at the impact and the pushback to that decision. 
Devon Hackett is hungry when I meet him after the school day ends at Castlemont High in East Oakland. He's a sophomore here, and most days he sticks around after school for football practice. I ask him what he's eaten today. Some cafeteria food for lunch, and that's it, because this morning I had to rush out the house. What did you have for lunch? Uh, I had some a hot dog and some fried potatoes. Devon doesn't expect to get a full dinner either. He says he'll probably only have a piece of fruit and some chips before he goes to bed. His mom is a nurse, and she works from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m., so she's usually too tired to cook when she gets home. Devon used to rely on a free after-school supper program that serves some 3,000 Oakland students across all grade levels. He got both a free lunch and supper, energizing him for school and for football practice. If I don't eat the supper, and I'm just going to start getting cramps in practice and I won't be able to play. And that's going to affect most of our team's health because if we don't eat the supper, then we can't really perform how our coaches want us to perform. The supper program was cut by the Oakland Board of Education in June. It was part of a package of about $5.8 million in cuts that the school board made to reduce the district's budget deficit. Youth advocate Lucas Brecky-Meisner, who is the executive director of Oakland Kids First, says the change was abrupt, and students have suffered because of it. I don't understand how anyone in their right mind in this climate can say, kids don't deserve to eat. And that's effectively what I see the school board saying when they make these cuts. It's not something that the district's never done before and people are asking for. It's something that they did and decided didn't matter enough to keep. Students push back. With the support of community members, they circulated a petition to bring back free suppers at school. It got more than 2,000 signatures, and students delivered the petition to the school board at a late September meeting. But two months later, there's still no program. Instead, the district responded with a less expensive super snack. That gives students a juice and a prepackaged snack, like a bag of crackers, rather than the hot meal with its meat, vegetables, and milk that they used to get through the supper program. Devon's not impressed. It's not helping anybody because most of the people won't even eat the food. They'll just take the juice and go about their day. School administrators say that there's no money to reinstate the program. But Lucas says that the district could try to use proceeds from the soda tax that Oakland voters approved in 2016. After all, he says it's supposed to go to improving nutrition for Oakland kids. Lucas knows the district is struggling financially. Still, he says, kids need to eat if they're going to learn. And finding the funding for something that important is their responsibility. You know, we, we really want the district to be able to solve a, a problem that the district created. Um, to be clear, it was the overspending of the past administration and really this iteration of the school board that put us in this crisis. And so young people are really paying the price. At a November school board meeting, Oakland students were back to remind the board members they're going hungry. Hi, my name is Heavenly Simpson. I am an 11th grader at Cosmo High School. A lot of people... Here are, a lot of people are here to protect what you are going to cut, but I am here to talk about what you already cut, which is the supper program. You also As she spoke, her confidence was growing. A lot, people, a lot of us come from poor communities, but we are, we are worth more. So start treating us like it. Thank you. Lucas agrees. When he hears arguments like, that's the parents' job, the parents need to feed the kids, that's not the school's problem. It's frustrating. He says people need to consider where these kids are coming from. 
the reason that they need to provide that is because of poverty. It is because of food deserts. A lot of their kids are food insecure. We have students in a lot of really precarious positions where they don't have access to food regularly. And honestly, the school is one of the last public institutions in a lot of these neighborhoods that really can fill that, fill that void. That's true, says John Sasaki. He's the communications director for the Oakland Unified School District, or OUSD. This is something that we know that our community depends on, we know that our kids depend on it, our families depend on it. So we're out there looking across the Bay Area trying to talk to uh, public-private uh, possibilities for bringing us funding. For now, though, the program remains unfunded, and that's demoralizing for Devon. It makes me feel like the OUSD really doesn't care about us because they're actually taking some meals that the kids really depend on for food away and now they don't know when their next meal is going to come from and that just puts me in the mindset like, wow, why even come to school anymore? Because, he says, it's hard to focus on learning when your stomach's growling. I'm Wyatt Kroof for the Tales of Two Cities podcast. Our next story is from Ali DeFazio, who took a ride around historic landmarks in Oakland and Richmond with Ashel Seasons, also known as the Lyft Rapper. He's a YouTube-famous Lyft driver who freestyles to his passengers about landmarks along the journey and their destinations. Yeah, so I'm Ashel Seasons, and I'm also known as the Lyft Rapper. I ride around, pick up passengers, unbeknownst to them. They're picking up, they're getting picked up by the Lyft Rapper. What that means is they get opportunity to pick a topic and a style of music and I'll make up a song on the spot. Seasons is taking drops of OSHA, an herb for throat remedies, when I get into his white Prius. He's got stickers his friends have given him plastered all over his dashboard. We're getting ready for our tour of Oakland and Richmond, as performed by none other than Lyft Rapper himself. Yeah, riding around Lake Mary right now, I'm about to do a freestyle. Yo, yo, riding around the lake right now, it's kind of hazy, damn it's kind of crazy, there's some common climate change, other people call it lasers, blaze down from the harp device, I don't know what really is nice though, Ride around with my homegirl, Ili Yo, what's the price though, that you gotta pay to get Season's lyrics take on anything, city politics, Bay Area history, even barbecue Becky. Oh, you didn't know it's Lake Merritt. I gotta carry it. Just like my homegirl did when she went into the barbecue. Somebody tried to call the cops. She was like, no, no, they gotta stop. That's why the left rapper daily gotta rock. Beyond identity politics, yeah. No tricks up the sleeve, yeah, you getting with something deep upon the zone. It's Lake Merritt. Oakland be my current home. Uh. Seasons got his start when he would practice songs while he was driving. He's in the West African-inspired band Dogon Lights and the rap and reggae collective Earth Amplified. He noticed passengers liked his stuff, and he got an idea. I noticed people were videotaping. Like, yo, that's pretty dope. And they were like, people were sneaking videotaping. I'm like, dude, it's okay, you can videotape. And then I realized at that point, I was like, you know what? I got the epiphany. I was like, wow. So it just came out of that. Next, we hit up Grand Lake Theater, which is famous for the political messages its owner puts up on the marquee. Yeah. 
What you believe you know about going around the Grand Lake? Grand Lake. Did that, you know that pasta never fake. Never fake. Independent own. You can always look on the dome too. You can see a lot of politics coming through. They put it on the marquee like who's gonna vote for this year? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Grand Lake, yeah, Grand Lake, gotta go. To the spot, gotta check and support it. Next stop on our sightseeing tour was the Rosie the Riveter Museum in Richmond. On the way, Seasons queued up a song he had recorded using a goni, a traditional West African stringed instrument. Yeah. May the rain come down now, yeah. Yeah. May the rain come down, yeah, yeah, yeah. May the rain. But I remember one of the first times I played it, I remember not being aware that I was really playing it because I remember just touching it and immediately I put my head to it because it's a, it sticks up, this, this pole sticks up out of it and the strings come down, almost like the Bay Bridge looks a little bit. The strings come down from it and connects to the gourd, so they're on an angle. And I put my head on a bridge and I saw all these ancestors, these African ancestors, and they were super excited that I had picked up the goni and they were super excited that I was about to play. Give us all, give us all trespasses. Though the past come forward to the future and into the now. Hey, yeah. We make it to the Rosie the Riveter Museum in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hanging outside that Rosie Riveter. <laughs> Museum in Richmond, yeah, we delivered her. Truth and history about the place now. Yeah, right up in your face now is the climate change. Hoping we can rearrange what we do with our environment and stay the same. Everything changes. Look around, around the town. Used to put it down. Here in Richmond, people used to get to work. Yeah, from around the country. Yeah, they put up in their work. Yeah, people came from the south just to get that work. Yeah, now that's people looking left to right. To Richmond's shipyards famously employed women during the Second World War, but they also hired thousands of African Americans from the rural south who were looking for a better life away from Jim Crow laws and the South's more explicit racism. Richmond became an iconic example of a city that could provide stable working class jobs. Need those solar panels, need those wind farms too though. Yeah, it really ain't judo or even rocket science, but we got the appliance in our mind to lay it down. Yes, we got a representative. Bad news for fans. You can't request a shell season specifically on Lyft. But if you are lucky enough to get into a white Prius with stickers all over the dashboard, get ready for some freestyle. Got that Rosie, got that Rosie, Rosie Riveter energy. Rosie, got that Rosie, Rosie Riveter energy. For the Tale of Two Cities podcast, I'm Allie DeFazio. Chilling off in Richmond, got that Rosie, 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 uh. Chilling the spot. For our last story, we spoke with policy fellow Kane Cherry from the Hood Incubator in Oakland about repurposing the cannabis industry to better serve people of color in the Bay Area. Thank you, Kane, for being here with us today. Um, I guess I just wanted to start off by asking, like, what is the Hood Incubator? Can you talk to us about that? Oh, yeah. The Hood Incubator is a nonprofit that's based out of Oakland. It works on remedying the effects of the drug war by finding opportunities in ways in which uh, we can get black and brown communities involved in the legal cannabis industry. 
We need to find out ways of making what was used as a weapon against black and brown communities a vehicle for empowering those communities. So that doesn't just mean getting people involved in the legal industry, but also getting them to be able to advocate for themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the Hood Incubator and why this particular set of issues is important to you? At the one of the open houses, one of my friends suggested that I would go. And it was one of the first instances where I saw there was an attempt at community building, an attempt to sort of actually mobilize uh, black and brown people to get involved in the cannabis industry. I also did competitive speech and debate for a while. So one of the last topics I did when I was in school was over marijuana legalization. So I spent a lot of time reading and advocating about both the dangers of legalization that could happen on black and brown communities and the sort of benefits of needing to legalize cannabis because of the disparate effect of the war on drugs it has had on those communities. So yeah, you talked about this long history of criminalization of weed. What does it mean to encourage people of color to be in that industry legitimately today? Uh, I think what it means is to, one, recognize that there is a need to sort of close the gap that's being created insofar as that people have recognized that the war on drugs has produced disparate effects on different communities. Even the city of Oakland uh, recently released a report that said that from 1996 to even 2015, there was a disparate enforcement of drug laws in Oakland. So you find more black communities policed than white or middle class communities being policed. So to get black and the brown communities legally involved in the industry really is a move to remedy some of the effects of the drug war, especially in the context of that this is a booming industry. This is an industry that people said people can make billions of dollars off of. Yet we also have the prison industrial complex in which black and brown people have been imprisoned both for you know minor marijuana offenses or larger distribution offenses. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the Hood Incubator works to deal with some of the equity issues around legalization? The organization mostly works on trying to educate people, primarily through things like we have open monthly open houses that happen on the fourth Friday of every month. Uh, recently in October, we had a policy convening where we tried to get various organizations, but also activists and organizers, along with nonprofits and people that work in the cannabis industry to come together and learn more about what we can do in regards of remaining the impact of the war on drugs through equity policies, the impact of current equity policies. But I feel like what the Hood Incubator does is say that, A, that those people matter, and B, that those experiences matter, because those are ones that, given the right set of opportunity and also the right set of resources and right set of support, wouldn't be out there on the street selling whatever they got, but actually could work to be full-on legal participants in a regulated market and be successful at that as well because of the relationship they've already had with uh, selling cannabis, not legally. Where do you hope um, people of color will be in the industry and moving forward in the future? Um, in the industry, I hope they're stakeholders. I hope they're people that their products are prioritized, not just that they're place at the table is prioritized, like to actually make a commitment to equity requires active support. It doesn't require just like these programs that come and go at, within like two to five years, but it actually maintains a something that's beyond an ethical commitment.
yeah, so part of part of our interest here is this idea of, of repurposing and kind of like taking something that was one way or used or seen one way and recasting it and, mm -hmm. and sort of like putting it in a new light. So what is what is repurposing in this context in the cannabis industry mean to you? But outside of just people's ability to participate in the market, I think recognizing what can be done with the tax revenue to repair the damage that's been done to communities is also an important uh, thing to focus on, which is why the secondary goal of, you know, equity in sort of trying to level the playing field of cannabis is to make sure that those communities' needs are heard as this money gets redistributed to, like, building roads, building schools. Because it isn't just, you know, the war on drugs that uniquely creates a problem on black communities, but the impact that has on taking people out of their communities, their ability to, like, work and support their families, their ability to get jobs once they get out of prison and stuff, or their ability to get jobs after being arrested for a marijuana crime or a cannabis crime, excuse me, is very important to remedy and to think through when moving forward with legalization. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, no problem. We do have like one fun question. If there's anything that you could repurpose, like what, what would you do? Oh man, that's a big question. I don't know, maybe we could take back Pepe the Frog. I think it's rude that the alt-right, like, took a really wholesome, like, meme character and made it, like, a mascot of hate. So I feel like that's the quickest thing I'd repurpose. That or the internet, you know, cause the fact that now everyone, the internet's just sort of sometimes a cesspool of toxicity. So I feel like those are the two things I would repurpose. Pepe the Frog and the, the internet, I like that. <laughs> the whole internet. All of it. <laughs> to find out more about Kane Cherry's work at the Hood Incubator, visit hoodincubator.org. You can also follow him on Twitter at Hood Incubator. That's it for this episode of Tales of Two Cities. We hope you enjoyed our episode on repurposing. What's something that you've repurposed lately? It can be an object, an idea, maybe even a memory. Let us know. Comment on our SoundCloud account or write us on Facebook by looking up our websites Oakland North and Richmond Confidential. You can even tweet at us. We're at Oakland North Now and at RI Confidential. Our producer this week is Amy Mustafa. Our music is by Kevin McLeod. You can listen to our podcast on OaklandNorth.net, RichmondConfidential.org, and on SoundCloud. You can also subscribe on iTunes. I'm Ashley Omoma. And I'm Nina Sparling. Thanks for listening to the Tales of Two Cities podcast. Woo! <laughs>